Have any of you had a special meal or a grill out already this weekend? If you've had a special meal or a grill out already this weekend, uh, raise your hand. Matt, all right. How many of you still plan to have a special meal or a grill out this holiday weekend? Raise your hand. Mike's going, yeah, I'd like one. <laughs> Go ahead. April says you can cook it. All right. So as we come to, to holidays, there are some holidays that are uh, more customary than others to you know, have big meals. Uh, obviously, July 4th is a huge one for grill out. Thanksgiving, is, uh, it's amazing to me. You know, I often meet people at Cracker Barrel for discipleship times, for evangelistic Bible studies, and uh, Cracker Barrel is months ahead of the game. I mean, they've already got Christmas stuff out. There's Christmas trees and ornaments uh, at the end of August, before even September uh, turned the corner, and that's uh, crazy. But as we look to holidays, sometimes then there's the thoughts of, okay, what are, what's the meal going to be? And perhaps this weekend you've got an idea that uh, maybe you've bought the meat already and if it was uh, pork, maybe you put a special rub on the pork before you grill it, before you smoke it. If it's chicken, maybe you put it in a uh, marinade and it's, and it's already in the fridge uh, in that marinade overnight waiting to, to grill that. If it's steak, maybe you're just like, no, I, don't, I just want the taste of the steak. Now, uh, if you're Brazilian, you probably put some, some thick or kind of rock salt on the meat. That's uh, how they typically uh, season steak, and it's, it's awesome. Uh, it helps make it tender. So however you do it, you, you get this ready. You're thinking about uh, a big meal and uh, coming together. Then come the favorite sides, the salads, the, the desserts, the rolls. And it's an exciting time as, as you invite people to come. Sometimes it's your family members, the extended family. And as you gather, uh, you hope that it's going to be a good experience. If there's a family member that has a pool, normally that family member is the one who is kind of expected in a way to host this meal, especially in summertime because it's fun to swim uh, before and after. So let's imagine that there is a, a meal that's been planned like that. And let's imagine that a father has invited his, his family to, to come to this meal and uh, there are uh, some adult children and their, you know, and their kids already, grandkids. And so it's a, it ends up being kind of a, a family reunion. There's, you know, there's a good group there. And then as, they, as they're you know, having supper and then after the supper, sitting around the table, the father suddenly gets pretty serious and he says, hey, I, I want to share with you that... One of you at this table is going to betray me to an assassin. And pretty soon, I'll be murdered. Pretty soon, I will be separated from you. During this, I mean, all, all of a sudden, it gets awkwardly silent. There's kind of some murmurs like, who's going to do that? But then in the course of the discussion, there's also an argument among the family members of who is the most important family member in the group, who has contributed most to the family, who's the most successful, um, who would be the one to kind of take dad's place, you know, and, and there's this discussion of who's the most important. At one point, then the dad kind of calls attention again. He says, you know, I want you all to know that actually all of you will abandon me at the time of the attack. But then one jumps up and says, no, no, not me. I, I will die for you. You can count on it, Dad. I'll be right there with you. And if it means that I have to give my life for you, I'll be there and I'll give my life for you. Sound familiar? Upper room, Jesus Christ, 12 disciples. 
Let's go back a little bit. If you want to kind of try to follow along, we're not actually going to read all the verses, but in John chapter 13, it actually sets uh, the scene for this. In the beginning of John uh, chapter um, 13, we see that uh, uh, Jesus begins to give some instructions of, you know, going to prepare the Passover meal. And I'm going to piece together. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have this account. Some include different details. Uh, So I'm going to try to piece several of those accounts together to give you an idea of Jesus sending his disciples and preparing for this Passover meal, getting us to the point where we are in John chapter 14. Luke 22 tells us that Jesus uh, sent Peter and John. The other gospels just say that he sent two of his disciples. But Luke actually includes the names that it was Peter and John. And he says, you're going to go into the city, and you're going to find a man carrying water, and he's going to meet you. Now, I've often thought that was interesting that, you know, it appears that Jesus either went ahead or Jesus, as God, had, had somehow arranged this. And, but he said, okay, you're going to go into the city, you're going to meet a man uh, with some water, he's going to meet you there. As he goes into a house, follow him into that house. And then once you get into the house then you need to ask the master, where is the room uh, that we, we need to celebrate the Passover? Where is the room that is prepared for the Passover? And the, the, the master is going to show you to the upper room, and it's going to be furnished, and that is where you can complete the preparations for the Passover meal. So the disciples, Peter and John, did exactly that, and the, the, the Gospels tell us that they found everything to be according to exactly what Jesus had said. So they've all gathered now. The 12 are there. Uh, Jesus is with them. They, they begin to celebrate the, the Passover uh, meal. And then we see in John chapter 13 and verse 21, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Luke 22 adds the detail. He says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover before I suffer. So he's, he, Jesus is throwing out some, some facts here and is, is helping the disciples to get a picture of my death is at hand. I've, I've talked about this and, uh, in, in the years that we've been together, but it's, it's coming near. I mean, this is, this is at hand. Luke 22 also, also says that when he broke the bread, he says, this is my body which I have given for you. Matthew 26 talks about this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Luke 22 is the the gospel that includes the argument about the disciples beginning to talk about in the midst of these uh, troubling news that Jesus says, in the midst of that, somehow an argument breaks out about who's the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest in the group here? You know, who's been with Jesus? Well, I don't know what the discussion all entailed. You know, maybe some said, oh, no, 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 but I was there that day. Remember that miracle? I was like right beside Jesus. Jesus used me. You know, I was the one who found the boy with the fish and the bread, right? And so there's, there's an argument of this is why I'm the most important. And Jesus, still in the midst of that, m- begins to model and teach, no, this is not what leadership is about. The Gentiles serve that way or or, or lead that way, but I'm going to show you, and he modeled as he washed their feet, and he says, this is what servant leadership is all about. 
In the process, Judas is uh, uh, exposed, at least to some, as being the one who's going to betray. And I don't know that the disciples fully understood what Judas was going to do. I don't believe they did. Uh, because they even question, you know, is it, it going to be me? Am I going to be the one that's going to betray Christ? But Judas is eventually dismissed. And Jesus basically says, all right, go do, you know, go do your business. And, he, and Judas is aware that Jesus knows that he's the betrayer. But then Jesus says, you know, all of you, when the, when the shepherd is struck down, all, all of you will flee. All of you are going to abandon. And Peter immediately talks up. He says, no, 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 not me. I will go to the death with you. Jesus says, actually, Peter, you'll deny me three times. So this is, this is kind of where we're at. Look at John chapter 13, verse 33. The verse will be on the screen. It says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. As we look back and as we know, you know, the Passion Week and all that's going to happen in the, in the events to come at the, at the end of each of these Gospels, we understand exactly what he's talking about. The, the disciples didn't get it yet. They, they didn't quite, they, they didn't understand, they weren't putting the pieces together. So notice what Peter says in verse 36 through 38 of John 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will, crow, will not crow till you have denied me three times. Luke adds the, uh, the, his gospel account adds the detail where it says, Jesus actually says, the prophecy will be fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors. You may, that may bring back to you some of the, the verses in Isaiah chapter 53. So Jesus is, is talking somewhat in coded language, but yet also pretty clearly that I'm going to suffer and my body's going to be broken and my blood's going to be poured out and I'm going to go, you know, uh, he didn't say it specifically, but he, he was pretty much implying pretty clearly, I'm going to go to the cross. You're not going to be able to follow me there. In fact, all of you are going to abandon me. Yes, even you, Peter, who, who claims that you're going to die, you're willing to die for me. That's not, that's not the case. So this is where we, we, where we come to John chapter 14. But instead of Jesus responding in, in anger, in accusation, uh, he responds with assurance and he responds with affirmations to the disciples. If it had been me, I would have been extremely, extremely hurt, offended, and probably angry. What do you mean? What do you mean, disciples, you, you 11 that are left? What do you mean that you're, you're, you're arguing? Who's the best? Don't you know that I'm almost headed to the cross? Don't you realize that all that I've talked about these last three years and that's leading up to me, remember when I said I'm the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep? But yet you sit here in front of me, we've, we've finished the Passover meal, and you sit in front of me and you argue about who's the best, who's the most important, but John 14, we see a different reaction. John 14 and verse 1, it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
And pretty soon in this passage, Jesus is going to begin to, to talk very clearly about the destination for all who believe in God and who believe in Jesus Christ. All who believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The destination is a heavenly home. We see this in John chapter 14 and verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. Some translations say many mansions. The idea in the Greek is, is uh, more of the, of the dwelling place, of a room. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, this is a real place. Heaven is a real place. It's not just a, a children's story thing that we read and, and hopefully get a little bit of encouragement. This isn't just fantasy world. It's not just a, a fairy tale. No, this is our destination. In fact, Hebrews 11 verse 10, you'll see it on the screen. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, but our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. Paul reminds the Philippian believers, yes, we're here on earth, and yes, there's, there's things that we face here, but remember, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these disciples, Judas is already gone. He's already, you know, starting to do his negotiations again about betraying Jesus. He's already, you know, made contact beforehand. Jesus says, all right, go. Go and do what you're going to do. Judas is out of the picture. They're still there in the upper room after they've enjoyed a meal. Jesus has washed their feet. There's been these, these troubling, you know, statements that Jesus has said. But then he says, don't be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me. And then he begins to talk about the final destination, a heavenly home. For three years, these men have followed Jesus and they've walked and they've, they've been to so many different places. And we learn from Matthew 8, verse 19 and 20, Jesus did not even have a place to lay his head that he could call his own. So Jesus, along with these disciples, had been in different homes and had been hosted by different people in all the areas that they served. And thank God for those people who opened their homes and served in that ministry. But it's not quite like being home. We stayed in many homes throughout our, our, our years of, of ministry and have a lot of great memories and a lot of great blessings and people that we've met, times that we've been able to share with brothers and sisters in Christ. But there's also been awkward moments in some of those homes. You know, a kid gets sick. A kid has a fit during the middle of the night. You know, a young, a young child and is screaming and you're like, oh my goodness, you know, what is this host family gonna think of us? We're like the worst parents in the world. And things happen, and so you just don't feel quite at home. So these, these disciples, as Jesus begins to give some encouragement, in my Father's house, there's a room being prepared for you. Imagine the encouragement to think about, wow, some, some stability, some certainty, a, a place that is very welcoming. This was a huge encouragement for them, no doubt. Now notice the next screen here. This may be familiar to you. I, I don't know about all of you. I have become probably um, in an unhealthy way dependent on GPS. And so I get in the car. One of the first things I do is I connect my phone and I put the address in. 
I, I see a little bit of the generation gap because when I drive with dad, dad gets in the car, and if it's somewhere that it's a familiar location, he's like, you don't know how to get there? I'm like, no, 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 I, I do know how to get there, Dad, but I just don't know like where traffic is and the accidents and ways can kind of send me different routes. And he's like, oh, okay, because, I mean, I know how to get there if you, if you just want me to. Oh, no, no, I know how to get there. But whenever I have the opportunity to, in my GPS, put in home, that is a welcoming moment. I enjoy going out, I enjoy traveling, I enjoy meeting people, I enjoy doing the, the, the different uh, responsibilities and privileges of ministry, but there's, there's a, a certain sense of when I can type, when I can push in and select that link, 2862 Glen Burnie Court, Ackworth, Georgia, I can just kind of breathe and just like, okay, I'm, I'm headed home, I'm going home. Maybe in some sense the disciples begin to think, wow, we're, we're, finally, we're finally talking about a destination here. We're finally talking about some rest, some, some certainty, some stability. Home is a special place to, to you, perhaps, for different reasons. I'll give you some really deep reasons why home is special to me. I know where the honey mustard pretzels are. I like to snack. And so I know exactly, I can, I can round the corner, in fact, I guess I'm a creature of habit because often when I come out of my office at different times of the day, Kim just knows if she's doing something in the house, she'll say, snack time? I'm like, yep. And I'll go to the pantry. I'll fill a cup with the honey mustard pretzels. I'll go back to my desk, continue working, and, and snack. I know where the honey mustard pretzels are. For my midnight snack, I know exactly where I can get the bowl for cereal, pull the milk out of the fridge. If I'm feeling healthy that night, I'll get the mini wheats. They are frosted, so they have sugar, but I'll get the mini wheats if I'm feeling healthy. If I'm feeling like a kid at heart, then I'll grab for the Fruit Loops, and I'll have Fruit Loops. But I, but I know where those things are. I know exactly in the drawer where the fingernail clippers are. I have my pillow. I, I don't know about you, but there's nothing quite like my pillow. I, I travel with my pillow and when I can. I like stuff it in my, my suitcase because it doesn't matter where in the world I'm at. If I'm going across the world, I like to take my pillow because it just, it's just my pillow. It's, it's part of home. And so home is important to me, but yet all of these things really, I'm, in a silly way, these, these really aren't the most important things about home. One occasion when I had, we had come to the States for a brief visit and I had gone back to Brazil uh, alone. I had to go back early. The rest of the family stayed here. And I, I remember, I can see it today, walking into our house in Sao Paulo, the neighborhood of Vila Represa, walking into that neighborhood, walking into my house, opening the front gate door, going into the, to the door, walking down the hall. It was, still, it was still neat. It was still organized. I knew where the cereal was. I knew where the milk was. I knew where uh, all these things were. My pillow was there, but nobody else. That was empty. It was almost eerie. I mean, you know our family. We, we've had kids like forever. I mean, so it's just like there's always noise. There's always something going on. So it was, it was, it was eerie to walk in. And I remember just kind of going back to the room when, when it was time to go to sleep. And like, well, I, I guess this is it. I guess I'll just go to sleep. I mean, there's nobody else here. And that is the idea that we need to see, first of all, in John chapter 14. It, heaven is not primarily about all that we expect of, oh man, in heaven, 
what kind of room, what kind of mansion is Jesus getting ready for me? Is it going to have like a huge couch, small couch? Is it, I mean, is it going to have like the king size bed? I mean, is it going to have like the recliner chair? Is it going to have like all the favorite drinks and all the food? And it's going to have the animals that I like. I mean, it's just going to, is it, is heaven, when you first think about that, is it all of those things or maybe even the absence of things? Well, man, thank God in heaven, I'm not going to have to like sweat so much and I'm not going to have to pull weeds. We, here in Georgia, pine trees are great, but there are, are millions of the little small pine tree weeds that just grow overnight, right? So you think, well, in heaven, there's not going to be that. In heaven, we're not going to have the sicknesses of cancer and heart attacks and strokes. But in John 14, we see that the main characteristic, the main thing that Jesus focuses on is not necessarily all of those benefits that John, very uh, in Revelation, Describes in great detail, but notice what Jesus says next in John chapter 14, 3 and 4. We see that it's a heavenly home, but a heavenly home with Jesus. John 14, verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus says. For over 27 years now, I've had the privilege of doing life with Kim, and we obviously live in the same house. Oh, great, Pastor. That's good to know. But prior to our wedding day on June 8th, 1996, prior to that wedding day, we dated. We did not live together. We were in the same city. We went to the same Christian school. We were in the same youth group. We did a lot of things together. But in that time period, the most important thing to me, apart from Christ, and even sometimes I'm sure I put Kim even above him at times, but one of the important things to me was not necessarily where I was with Kim, but that I was with Kim. It could be in the messy school cafeteria, but as long as we were together, we were having a great time talking and, and having a good time. If, if it was after a ball game, my parents often went to our away games, and so we would ask the coach ahead of time, coach, can Kim ride back with my family after the game? And most of the time, we would get permission, and Kim would ride back after the game. My parents were in the front seats. I loved my parents, but do you know who I, care, who, who I was most interested in on that ride back home from the game? Kim. I wasn't asking dad and mom, so what's your analysis of the game? What did you think of play number five? No, I was, I was talking to Kim and I was getting to know her more. And wherever Kim was, we went on vacations together sometimes. And we, sometimes we would just take a walk in the park. Sometimes we would run errands together. But I wanted to be with Kim. And the more that I grew closer to her, the more that I desired to be with her. She went off to college a year ahead of me. And I remember counting down the days until Thanksgiving break when I would get on an airplane in Atlanta, Georgia and fly to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, drive an hour and show up in Watertown, Wisconsin so I could be with Kim. The more that you and I grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, the sweeter heaven will become, not because there's no tears, not because there's no sickness, not because of the mansion that we may imagine for ourselves or all the great things that heaven might have, but the sweeter it will be become because Jesus will be there. 
And he says, I'm going and I'm preparing a place for you. Why? Because I'm coming back to bring you to be with me so that where I am, you can be with me. So we look forward to a heavenly home, but I pray, that, I pray that you will grow in your relationship with Christ so that you mainly look forward to that heavenly home because Jesus will be there. Now, if you're not growing in Christ here, if you know the Lord is your Savior, but yet you know, the, the busyness of life and all of these things, you're just really not growing closer to him, well, then it's no surprise that you really don't have a longing and a desire to spend an eternity in heaven. But if you are growing in Christ and you are growing closer to him, then heaven's gonna become so much sweeter. As you think about that, as you long for the day where you can be with heaven. Now, that's the destination, but I, I wanna look at the detours what can distract us? What can, can, can change the course for some in this way? Look, first of all, I want to look at temporary detours. Temporary detours. And probably more accurately, you could look at these as, as distractions. When Jesus tells the, the 11 disciples, believe in God, believe also in me. I don't believe that Jesus was telling the disciples, believe for the first time. I don't believe Jesus was like saying, okay, I, I want you to, if you want to use our terms sometimes that we use today, I want you to get saved. No, I, I believe Jesus was emphasizing, as you have believed, continue. And, and so first of all, I want to look at some temporary detours, or for followers of Christ, maybe more accurately, temporary distractions of this final destination of home, a heavenly home with Jesus. Think about bad times. The disciples had allowed some of these bad times to, to distract them, some of these bad times to, to kind of detour them from a focus on the, the heavenly home and the destination that lay before them. Here, they, there's gonna be a rocky road. Jesus already says, I'm gonna go suffer. My body's gonna be broken. My blood's gonna be poured out. Um, I'm gonna be numbered with sinners, and he, he lets the disciples know, things are going to change for you too. And so these, this troubling news and even the, the, the tension of deciding or trying to decide who's best among us, these bad times had robbed them, had limited really the enjoyment that they could have of the promise and of the blessed hope of knowing that the final destination for them would be a heavenly home with Jesus. Same can happen with us. As life happens, as maybe our health fails, as we face financial uh, crisis, as we have relationships that seemingly are falling apart, then in those moments, we can, we can allow those things to, to dominate our thoughts and we can, we can fail to live in the reality of this is really not my home. This is, just, this is just a short journey on my way to an eternity with Jesus Christ that'll be completely different, that'll make all of this suffering and all of this difficulty so worthwhile. The bad times can distract us, but the good times can too. The good times can distract us and be de detours. Man, life is great. 
making the money I want. I got the promotion I wanted as a student. You may, you may think, I got on the team that I wanted to. I got you know, selected for the play that I wanted to be on. My friend group is pretty cool. I mean, I think we're pretty cool people. And so I've got the friends that I want and everything seems to be going okay. So when we think of heaven, heaven then now is not so grand because the good things in life begin to overshadow the best thing in life, which is our destination and our final hope and home in heaven. So we begin to just kind of live in, uh, maybe you could think about it as kind of like appetizers. God gives us many blessings, but sometimes we take those blessings and we begin to substitute them for something far greater, which is our final home in heaven. Let me give you a silly illustration. There are some restaurants that if I go to these restaurants, I have to be careful that I don't eat too much of the appetizers and not, I don't want to spoil the main entree. Longhorn is one of them. I love their loaf bread. I can see it now. Brown, the butter comes out, the butter just melts on the bread. I mean, I can eat that. I love bread. So I can eat that bread up, and if I'm not careful, I can eat too much bread, and then like the steak comes out, and I'm like, oh man, I, I'm full. I had I had a lot of bread. I just, can you bring it to go box? I've had so much bread. Outback is another place, the Bloomin' Onion. Bloomin' Onion comes out, it's there. You can smell the fry and it's got the, the sauce in the middle and I start to eat the Bloomin' Onion. Good stuff. Texas Roadhouse, the yeast rolls. Do you see a pattern? It's like a lot of carbs. <laughs> so, so you know, Texas Roadhouse, they have the, they have the yeast rolls and I just, I love the yeast rolls and putting the butter on those things again and I could eat a lot of yeast rolls. Cracker Barrel, you'll never guess. Biscuits, the buttery biscuits as they bring the biscuits out. But all of those things, they're just, they're just appetizers. But sometimes in our life, even as God allows good things, we begin to allow those things to overshadow the glory, the majesty, the beauty of the fact that one day we're going to be with Jesus Christ for eternity in heaven. So believer, be careful. Don't allow the bad times. Continue to look to him because this is not our home. We're looking to another city. We're, we're, we have another citizenship. We have a special place in our father's house. But even the good times, be careful. Sometimes that's even the more difficult challenge because in the good times, we can get this false sense of, I'm doing it right. I think I've got life kind of figured out. Jesus is part of it, but all of these good things, man, I think I've been pretty good. I'm doing this thing right. Look at things, look at the outcomes. And so, and all of a sudden, heaven begins to fade away in the distance. Eternity with Christ? No, 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 not, not yet. <laughs> not quite yet. Because we're feasting on the appetizers. We're not ready. We're not looking. We're not longing. We don't have a desire for the most important. Now let's notice also the permanent detours. The permanent detours. There, there are many different ways you can look at this, and this is specifically for those who are not followers of Christ, who, those who don't know Christ as their personal Savior. They may have heard the message. There may have been a seed of the gospel planted, but some of these, and these are very broad categories, but these can be, very, can be permanent detours of that heavenly home and that heavenly home with Jesus. One would be just simply 
rejection. We've seen it already throughout the book of John. A very mixed reaction. Some who believe and who, who, who accept and see the I am statements of Jesus and they begin to, to follow Jesus Christ and bear fruit and they are followers of him. But then others just flat out reject him. Others already in the book of John have said, you know, what are we going to do with this man, this one that performs these signs and wonders? They don't, re- they don't deny his power. They don't deny what's going on. But they're basically saying, we, we reject him. We reject the idea and the belief that he is the Messiah, even though his, his works, you can't deny him. But yet, there's a flat rejection. If a person believes that an all-powerful and supreme, supreme God doesn't even exist then he or she will have this this mistaken feeling that they have freedom to find their own way to satisfaction. They can find their own way to do life. They can find their own system that seems to work for them. And it's a flat-out rejection. Often, even those who may say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm atheist, I don't believe in God, but yet, in a sense, they have made themselves their own God. They've put themselves on the throne to try to to decide, how does this world work? How did this world come about? What is the purpose of this world? And so now, all of a sudden, that individual has put himself or herself in the place of God and just basically says, no, there's no God except me, and I'm God. Again, in a very honest conversation recently, an individual said that. I'm the God. I'm the God of my own life. Said that, and and I appreciate his honesty, but he said, I'm the God of my own life. No, (laughs) but, I mean, thanks for sharing what you think. Rejection. Another one is religion. Look Look at these next two phrases. Religion says, look inside yourself for salvation. That's kind of the big picture, the the broad stroke of religion. Religion has this idea, I can do enough to bring about salvation. I can follow a certain system. I can do these rituals. I I can express a certain devotion. So religion says, look inside yourself for salvation. Now notice the contrast in what the gospel is. The gospel says the only hope for salvation is outside of yourself. There is nothing that I can muster up within me. There is no goodness that I can like uh, fabricate. There's no system that I can follow ever so sincerely. There's nothing that I can do inside of myself to produce salvation. It has to be outside of myself. And we know that that's Jesus Christ. He's the only way, truth, and life. Another way is morality. Some who would say, well, no, I don't flat out reject the idea of God. I'm not really into religion, but I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And so the morality followers, they, they really begin this game of pretending and comparing. Pretending and comparing. While on uh, the Marietta campus recently, um, uh, I was there for a couple hours and, and saw a student that walked around, was walking around with a t-shirt. And on the t-shirt, um, and, I, and later I think it's some quote from a, 
a social media influencer. I don't know the individual, but the quote on the shirt was, um, in, a world, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. Oh. In a world where you can be anything, be kind. Well, yes. I mean, yeah, we need to be kind. But if we're honest with ourselves, are we always, 100% of the time, kind? No. Absolutely not. But if we begin and we kind of define for ourselves, this is the standard of morality that I believe is enough, and this is the standard of morality that I think I can follow, so therefore, this is the standard of morality that defines true satisfaction, that defines whether I'm really doing good in life or not, so I'm going to try to follow this box. But honestly, even the box that we define for ourselves, oftentimes, we can't even follow that. So we begin to pretend, we begin to try to keep up the, you know, the, the, the outward look that, yeah, I'm, I'm a morality follower. And then we compare, you know, in our minds, we may not even say it verbally, but in our minds, we often look and we go, well, I'm not like that person. I mean, look at how that person treats his friends or her friends. Look at how that person is so just, you know, lazy in schoolwork. Look at how that person, uh, you know, talks about others. Look at how that person, and so there's this, there's this game then of comparing. The only hope for salvation is outside of yourself. We'll see, and we have seen this already in the book of John, and we'll see it even more in this today and next Sunday, Lord willing, Christ is the only standard. It doesn't matter if I'm a little bit better than than so-and-so or so-and-so because there's a lot more people that are better than me. So there's, there's no standard really that I should compare myself to except for the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a simple test that all morality follows, all morality followers will most likely fail. This is the test. You've heard me say this before and give this illustration. It's not original with me, but imagine that all of a sudden I say, okay, in a few minutes, we're going to begin a video of your life, every one of you. We're going to begin a video of your life on the two screens, everything about your life, everything, every thought, every impure thought. Every, every moment of anger, every moment of frustration, every reaction of jealousy, everything that you thought you did in secret, everything in your life up to this very second will be shown on these two screens. You're invited to stay or you're welcome to leave. I would be the first one to sprint out of this building because... I can't, I cannot muster up within myself enough goodness. And time and time again, out of the graciousness and mercy and the mirror of God's word, I am shown that I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. And apart from God's mercy and grace and sacrificial love for me, I am hopeless. For those who are the morality followers most likely, if they have any self-respect, they're going to fail that test and they're going to sprint out with me because they don't want anybody to see everything about their life. James 2.10 says it this way, 
For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. We often define kind of what we think we can follow. So there's so many commands and so many models, and obviously Jesus Christ as the perfect model in Scripture, but yet we kind of make this own smaller box, and we go, well, I think I can do that and that and that. And even if I can't really do it 100% of the time, I can keep up a pretty good face and a pretty good you know, show to pretend and to compare. And James says, that's not how it works. If you obey in everything except one point, you are just as guilty as the person next to you who didn't care at all and just broke all the laws. In the sight of God, in the sense of salvation and being worthy and and matching up to the perfection of God, we're just as guilty, James says. Let's close by, we're going to begin this, we'll, follow, we'll complete this next week, but we've seen the destination. Now, what's the way? What is the way? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way. John 14, 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And as we read this, the, the first idea that comes to mind may be, it might come to mind kind of the physical aspect of that. What is my mansion or what is my house or what is my room going to look at, look like in my father's house, in this heavenly home? So sometimes our our first thought is kind of the physical aspect of how is Jesus preparing this place for me? After living and serving in Sao Paulo for 10 years, we really felt that God was moving us out of the city. So while we were back on furlough for a year, I went back on two occasions left a family here. I I traveled back. The first trip was to determine where does God want us next? What city? Where, where, you know, would be the best place, at least in in God's uh, leading, to begin a new church? That was the first trip. God gave some clarity. We sought counsel. Kim and I prayed much, and we had uh, really, we felt a clear direction of moving out of the city of Sao Paulo and moving to a growing suburb area of Junjai in Itupeva. But that meant that all of our belongings in Sao Paulo, we were going to have to move to this other city. I didn't want that to happen as soon as the whole family arrived back in the country. So I went on a second trip, and I I got some help, and thankfully a lot of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, helped me too as we rented a truck and moved our stuff from the house in Sao Paulo, moved it into a house that we had rented or were going to rent from a, a missionary friend, and during that time, even hired an electrician and had uh, some, some lights put up in the house. The missionary friend had not completed the electrical installation, and there were a lot of just light bulbs kind of hanging down from the ceiling. I said, hey, do you mind if I buy some, some inexpensive but good-looking, you know, light fixtures and just, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. You can take it off your rent. And I'm like, oh, perfect. That's awesome. So I was getting these things ready. I was preparing because as my family then arrived a couple weeks later for that third trip, as we all came back to Brazil, it was pretty much ready. We went right from the airport and drove into Junjai. Kim had never seen the house other than pictures. She didn't know, you know much of what I had prepared. Thankfully, she's still with me, so I think I did an okay job. But as we pulled up to the house, it was so nice to have, have it ready. The beds were there. The fridge was on, and the fans were, I was about to say the AC was on. No, we didn't have AC, but the fans were ready to, to, to turn on. I had gone before, and sometimes our mindset is, that's what Jesus is doing. 
He's going before and he's getting our room. You know, we, we kind of customize it and Jesus knows me, so he's, he's going to customize my room. There's a lot more than that. In a spiritual sense, Jesus is going before us and even immediately he's going to the cross and that opens the path then, that opens the way to our eternal and final destination, home in heaven. Look with me in John chapter 14, verses 3 through 6. We see the path and the person is both Jesus Christ. John 14, verses 3 and 4. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Then notice this, and you know the way to where I'm going. Now, why could Jesus say that? Because Jesus had already, through, this, through his time with the disciples, uh, he had already uh, revealed himself as the eternal present God in John chapter 8. Before Abraham was, I am. He had revealed himself as the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, uh, the resurrection, and the life. And so Jesus is sharing with them and saying, you, you know the way. But then Thomas says what probably all the other disciples were thinking. Notice in John 14 and verse 5. Thomas has a question. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And all the disciples were probably, as soon as Thomas said this, I would imagine most of the other disciples were like, yeah, that's right, Thomas. Man, thanks for asking. There's some students in your classroom, students, who maybe do this. I mean, you've got the question, but then there's students, they have no shame. They're like, what, what are you talking about, teacher? I have no clue. I, I don't get it. Mary was talking about a friend of hers in class the other day who was, was in math class and, and was trying to do something. And the, and the guy just blurted out and says, this makes me feel like committing suicide. And the teacher was like, whoop. And the teacher actually said, well, so-and-so probably just said what a lot of us think when we're going through math. And that's what Thomas was asking. We don't know where you're going. But Jesus had revealed himself to them in so many ways. And again, he didn't respond in anger. He didn't respond in accusations. Others, Peter's already asked a question. Thomas asked a question. We're going to see through the rest of the passage next Sunday. Two other disciples ask questions. They don't quite get it. They're not quite putting all the pieces together. The disciples may have been thinking, you know, Lord, you're, you're talking in like this coded conversation, and we just, just come out and tell us. I mean, where are you going? All of this builds up to what we see next in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, to Thomas, I am. Now, I don't know. I'm curious, but I'm not sure. Maybe, just maybe Jesus paused for a second after those two words. Maybe initially, as he answered Thomas and he was looking at the rest of the disciples, maybe for a minute he just said, I am. And maybe this would bring back to remembrance how he said, yeah, before Abraham was, I am. Maybe they would remember, yeah, okay, when we were with the multitudes and there was no food, and Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Maybe then in the Feast of Booths, when we were there with uh, Jesus in the, in the temple, the, the treasury part of the temple, the, the, the uh, um, court of the women, and there were the four pillars, and the, the oil lamps were on top that had been lit every night, and Jesus says, I am the light. 
of the world. Maybe they remembered that. Perhaps they can remember back even recently what we just looked at, how Martha and Mary were so hurt and offended and, and confused in a sense to say, Jesus, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. But then right after that, to see the celebration and just the amazement when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, Lazarus, come forth. Perhaps Jesus just paused and said, I am. But then he continues on, John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way. Then notice how verse 6 ends. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're going to take the middle part of that verse and dissect it next week, Lord willing. But Jesus says, I am the way. And nobody, no one, no person, good or bad, no one is going to come to the Father but through me. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we finish this morning?